This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, Mary Louise Kelly, a host of NPR's All Things Considered, talks about the difficulty she's faced juggling her career and being a mother. She's faced constant breaking news and deadlines and has reported from around the world, including war zones. She left NPR twice to take care of her children. She's written a new memoir. Also, we hear from singer and actor Josh Groban. He's playing Sweeney Todd in a new Broadway revival of the Stephen Sondheim musical about a barber out for revenge. <laughs> Put it on a bun. Well, you never know if it's going to run. Groban has sold millions of records since he started his singing career when he was 17. And Justin Chang reviews Showing Up a new film about making art starring Michelle Williams. And always arrives overdone. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Terry Gross. My guest, Mary Louise Kelly, is a host of All Things Considered. And prior to that reported on national security for NPR for about two decades. Like every working mother, she's had to juggle her work and parenting. The juggling act has been especially complicated for her. She spent time away from home, reporting from around the world, sometimes in war zones. Reporting from Iraq while covering a visit by the Secretary of Defense, she was on a Black Hawk helicopter about to take off when she got a call from her younger son's school nurse. He was four at the time. The nurse said, Kelly's son was very sick, and she needed to come right away, which of course was impossible. Her new memoir is about the choices she's made about her work and home life, including the time she quit NPR so she could spend more time with her children. When her oldest son was turning 18 and preparing to graduate high school and leave home for college, she thought about all the soccer games, concerts, science fairs, field trips, etc., that she'd missed over the years, always telling herself she'd do better next year. But for her older son, it was the final year she could make good on that promise, and she pledged that she would. That's where the book begins. The year had a few unexpected and upsetting twists. Her father died after fighting cancer for 17 years, and her husband decided he wanted to separate. Her book is called It Goes So Fast, The Year of No Do-Overs. Mary Louise Kelly, welcome to Fresh Air. I have such admiration for you. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Terry, thank you. The, the admiration is mutual, and it's a pleasure. I don't can't believe this is true that I've never actually spoken to you before. This is the first time, so it's a pleasure to finally get here. I know. We've never met, never spoken, so, so this is great. 
As you point out in your book, most books about juggling parenting and work are aimed at young parents. Mm. And you wrote your memoir when you, you turned 50 and your boys were in their teens and your older boy was about to go to college. Um, what was it that you wanted to witness to be there for for your teenage yeah. boys? Yeah. Um, as, as opposed to when you were the mother of young children. Well, I think one of the things that has surprised me is that I thought this whole balancing act, juggle, leaning in, leaning out, I thought this was supposed to get easier as my kids got older. And to my surprise, I found it has been the opposite. You know, it does get easier in some ways. My boys can, you know, they're teenagers, they can bathe themselves, they can dress themselves, they can make their own toast in the morning. Um, But the opportunity cost of my choices of where I spend my days and my hours that has gotten more challenging. And that, you know, I'll give you a specific example, Terry. Um, James, my oldest, who was the one who was entering his final year of high school. Um, so it was going to be the last year he was ever guaranteed to live in the same house as me before he went off to college and out into the world. Um he has been through many phases, you know, the pirate phase, the Star Wars phase, the, you know, different sports, different interests, but the constant love of his life to date is soccer. He's played it since he could walk, like since he was one year old. And um, by the time he's a senior in high school, he was starting forward on his high school varsity team. And the games are, you know, what his life revolved around and that, you know, the thing he's singularly focused on and his games are weekdays around four o'clock. Um, which is the exact same time that All Things Considered goes on air. And for years, this has been the case. And for years, I have thought, well, next year, I'm going to figure this out. Next year, I'm going to find a way to be in the bleachers and screaming my head off. And um, it dawned on me in the summer before his senior year, I I don't have any more chances. Like, there are no more next years. There's there's no more do-overs here. And... um, what seemed a relatively easy choice when there were hundreds of games stretching out into some infinite future, I could suddenly count on my two hands the number of games he had left and therefore the number of chances I had to show up. And I just thought, I want to sit with this year and really reckon with the choices I've made that got us here and the choices I'm making right now. And let me record them and see, like, you know, am I doing the right thing? Do I want to make a different choice now? Well, I mean, you're still hosting All Things Considered. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> the games are still starting at 4 o'clock during that year. <laughs> so you, you still couldn't go. I, t- I organized to take um, six weeks of leave. And I started writing this book during those weeks. And I had this idyllic image in my head that I was finally going to have figured out like how to have it all, how to have it all at once. I was going to type with glorious productivity um, every day till like, 3.30, and then I would shut my laptop and go scream my head off at the games. And it did work out that way on some days <laughs> and was great. And I managed to make some games that I'm so glad I made um, and other things. And then there were other days, you know, where it remains a challenge because um, there's, you know, for all of us, whether you're a parent with a kid in high school or anything else, it's, you know, the inherent challenge of sometimes you need to be in two places at once and it just ain't possible. 
a dramatic example of what you've been up against in terms of balancing work and parenting, something I referred to in the introduction. It's this time you were in Iraq covering a visit there by the Secretary of Defense, mm. and you were on the Black Hawk helicopter in Iraq about to take off when you got the call from your younger son's school nurse that he was super sick and that you had to get there right away, which, of course, you couldn't. In addition to spending part of that night in tears, what did you do after? <laughs> I did spend that night in tears, uh, even after I knew that he was okay, that his dad had made it, that all was going to be fine. I, yeah, they had assigned us to sleep, um, the, the Pentagon press corps, in these bunkers behind one of Saddam Hussein's then abandoned palaces. And I do remember lying in this triple bunk bed and just crying, um, thinking, you know, what am I doing? And I think it's time for career plan B because I really love my job and I think I'm actually pretty good at it. And I worked so hard to get here. Um, but I'm in Baghdad and my kid needs me. And right now for my family, this does not work. So yeah, on the plane back from that trip, back to uh, what was then called Andrews Air Force Base, um, I started writing what would become my first book, which was a novel about a reporter. (laughs) And I named her my protagonist, Alexandra James. My two sons are Alexandra and James. And I wanted to remind myself why I was doing it. And maybe was, you know, vicariously writing about a reporter who was still out there globetrotting when I wasn't because not long after that, I think a few months after that, I told NPR, I'm out. I quit. Um, And I did. And I stepped away from the news for, I don't know, five or six years um, and wrote books and filled in occasionally and, you know, kept my foot in the door. But I was around for my kids in those years, much more than I have been able to do in a, you know, in a full-time newsroom environment. And then a point came where they seemed healthy and thriving, and I thought, oh, man, I missed the newsroom. Um, called and said, hey, coach, put me back in. So here I am. What did you miss, and how did your identity change during those years you weren't working? Mm, I mean, being a journalist is in my bones. It is what I have always wanted to do. It is like since I was a kid, I started a newspaper on my street uh, and we used to, you know, cover things. I would award a yard of the month and then go interview the lucky winner (laughs) and put a, (laughs) your prize for that was that there was a pink plastic flamingo that I had at some point somewhere (laughs) had acquired from Home Depot and I would show up and plant it in the lucky winner's front yard. And I'm sure there were many conversations that 12 year old me was not aware of where the neighbors are like, can we take this thing down? Is it is it somebody else's turn yet? But um, yeah, I've always wanted to do this. And I edited my high school paper and did my college paper and um, have always thought this was the path for me. And being away from the newsroom, I in some ways found it more stressful than being in it. It was great being around all the time with my kids. And I love writing books and found that meaningful and, and satisfying work. Um, but every time a big story on my old beat would break, I'd be climbing the walls. I remember Edward Snowden. I remember the former NSA contractor um, who uh, had to flee uh, the U.S. Um, because he was going to be arrested and still would if he comes back. Um, his story was breaking all over the news the day that my first book published. And I was trying to give my very first book talk of all time, and I couldn't get off Twitter. I kept leaving and going and hiding in the ladies' room <laughs> to check Twitter and see, like, where is Snowden? Have they have they pulled him off the flight? Is he hiding out at Cheremetchevo Airport in Moscow? 
Well, let's take a short break here, and then we'll talk some more. If you're just joining us, my guest is Mary Louise Kelly, a host of All Things Considered. Her new memoir is called It Goes So Fast, The Year of No Do-Overs. We'll be right back after a short break. This is Fresh Air Weekend. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series about people's futures and how they can be reimagined. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. What does it mean to be black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as black experiences, you'll hear... It means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcast. Let's get back to my interview with Mary Louise Kelly. She's been a host of All Things Considered since 2018, and before that, covered national security for NPR. Her new memoir, It Goes So Fast, The Year of No Do-Overs, is about the difficulties she's faced and the tough choices she's made trying to balance work and parenting. It's been an especially difficult balancing act because her work has required covering breaking news and reporting from around the world, including war zones. We were talking about hostile environment reporting, Mm -hmm. and I want to talk about a different kind of hostile environment, which is an office, in particular, Mike Pompeo's office. (laughs) One of the kind of famous interviews that you did was interviewing Mike Pompeo in January of 2020? Correct, 2020. And... This was an interview that got very contentious because he kept avoiding answering your questions. Mm-hmm. And you, you had two things you wanted to talk to him about, the U.S. relationship with Iran and also Ukraine. So just set the stage for us about what you needed to know, like what was going on in the news that you needed to talk to him about. I had been asking for months for an interview with Mike Pompeo as Secretary of State, and I had gone back and forth with his press team uh, in booking the interview. They told me I would have 10 minutes, exactly, no more. So I had thought through the the few questions that I really wanted answered. Um, They had asked me would I agree to restrict my questions to only Iran. That's what he wanted to talk about. And I said... And in, put in writing, no, I won't agree to that. Uh, I intend to ask about Ukraine, and I intend to ask about whatever else you know the news gods may serve up overnight. I'm not going to take off the table if some crisis breaks out somewhere that I won't ask him about it. I never agree to take anything off the table. He doesn't have to answer it, but I have the right to ask, and I reserve that right. And one of the things you wanted to ask him about was Marie Yovanovitch, who had mm. been the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, and when she was not kind of cooperating with Rudy Giuliani's efforts to find dirt on Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, she was recalled. This whole shadow diplomacy campaign in Ukraine. And Mike Pompeo did not prevent that from happening. 
Correct. And she was ousted from her position. Uh, at the time that I sat down with Pompeo, she was still working at the State Department, but she had been ousted as ambassador and was testifying about everything that had transpired on her watch. Okay, so we're going to play the part of your 10-minute interview, which ended up being, I think, a nine-minute interview. <laughs> Cause yeah, it was cut short. It was cut mm-hmm. short. Um, so here's an excerpt of Mary Louise Kelly's interview with Mike Pompeo, then Secretary of State, from January 24th, 2020. And after the interview, we'll hear her talking about the interview with Ari Shapiro on All Things Considered. Um, and I, I just think this is a masterful interview, so let's hear it. Change of subject, Ukraine. Do you owe Ambassador Marie Ivanovich an apology? You know, I agreed to come on your show today to talk about Iran. That's what I intend to do. Uh, I know what our Ukraine policy has been now for the three years of this administration. I'm proud of the work we've done. This administration delivered the capability for the Ukrainians to defend themselves. President Obama showed up with MREs. We showed up with Javelin missiles. Previous administration did nothing to take down corruption in Ukraine. We're working hard on that. We're going to continue to do it. I, just I confirmed have, with I just your staff have, last night that I would talk I, about I just Iran don't have and Ukraine. Anything else to say about that this morning? I just want to give you another opportunity to answer this because, as you know, people who work for you in your department, people who have resigned from this department under your leadership, saying you should stand up well, for know. the I, diplomats I who work who, here. I don't know who these unnamed sources are you're referring to. I, I can tell you this: when these I talk, are not when unnamed I talk, sources. When I this is to my your senior here. advisor, Michael McKinley, a career foreign service officer with four decades' experience, who yeah. testified under oath that he resigned in part due to the failure of the State Department to offer support to Foreign Service employees caught up in the impeachment inquiry on Ukraine. I'm not going to comment on things that uh, Mr. McKinley may have said. I'll say only this. I have defended every State Department official. We've built a great team. The team that works here is doing amazing work around the world. respectfully, where have you defended Marie Ivanovich? I've defended every single person on this team. I've done what's right. For every single Can you person point me on toward your team. remarks where you have defended Marie Ivanovich? I've said all I'm going to say today. Thank you. Thanks for the repeated opportunity to do so. I appreciate that. One further question on uh, this. I'm, I'm not going to. I appreciate that. I appreciate you want to continue to talk about this. I, I agreed to come on and your you show And you appreciate today to that the American public wants to know, as a shadow foreign policy, as a back-channel policy on Ukraine was being developed, did you try to block it? The Ukraine policy has been run from the Department of State for the entire time that I have been here, and our policy was very clear. Marie Ivanovich testified been, under oath that. that Ukraine policy I've, was hijacked. I've been, I've been clear about that. I know exactly what we were doing. I know precisely what the direction that the State Department gave to our officials around the world about how to manage our Ukraine policy. Thank you Thank you. Secretary, thank you. Thank you. Mary Louise Kelly is here in the studio. And Mary Louise, will you explain what's happening at the end of the interview there? Hey, Ari, what is happening there is an aide has stopped the interview, said, we're done. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And you heard me thank the secretary. He did not reply. He leaned in, glared at me, and then turned and with his aides left the room. Moments later, the same staffer who had stopped the interview reappeared, asked me to come with her, just me, no recorder, though she did not say we were off the record, nor would I have agreed. Mm -hmm. I I was taken to the secretary's private living room where he was waiting and where he shouted at me for about the same amount of time as the interview itself had lasted. He was not happy to have been questioned about Ukraine. He asked, do you think Americans care about Ukraine? He used the F word in that sentence uh, and many others. 
He asked if I could find Ukraine on a map. I said yes. He called out for his aides to bring him a map of the world with no writing, no countries marked. Huh. I pointed to Ukraine. He put the map away. He said, people will hear about this. Uh, and then he turned and said he had things to do. And I thanked him again for his time and left. Wow. We have reached out to the State Department to let them know we plan to report this coda to the interview. And we have not yet heard back. So that was Mary Louise Kelly speaking with Ari Shapiro after her January of 2020 interview with then-Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Um, I want to know what it was like for you when he was hollering at you after the interview in his living room because he had asked to speak with you, so his aide ushered you in there. Then he started using the F word and, and saying, do you think Americans care about effing Ukraine? Can you even find Ukraine on an effing map? What was it like to have the Secretary of State not only hollering at you, but using the F word? Um, it was surreal. It, uh, it's a moment I, I will not soon forget. I remember feeling, again, as someone who's reported from a lot of countries that do not enjoy a constitutional protection of free speech and a free press, don't have a First Amendment, um, I've reported from countries like that where getting into a contentious interview with a senior official can land you in jail or worse. And I remember <laughs> hovering above myself and thinking, I'm glad I live in the U.S. Uh, where we have the First Amendment. I'm glad I work for a major news organization that has editors who are going to back me up. Um, because when we report this, it's going to be, you know, my word against the Secretary of State's word if he denies this ever happened. Uh, there was only one other witness in that room, and she worked for him. It was his press aide. And I felt the muscle of NPR standing up with me and for our journalism as we reported that. And as he eventually did put out a statement on State Department letterhead that called me a liar. But, you know, here's what I'm really wondering. After the Secretary of State lies about you, and shouts at you, uses the F word at you, but mostly lies about you. How do you trust anything that he says after that? How do you trust how he handles diplomacy and reports on that diplomacy after that? If he lied about you, how do you trust anything he says? Uh, you know, I don't know that that's the way I ever frame it. I'm, I'm not, you know, going into whether it's uh, Pompeo or any other official from any administration. I'm not basing my reporting and coverage on trust. I'm basing it on what do I know? How do I know it? Have I been able to verify this from other sources? What evidence can they put forward to marshal support for their position? Like, why do they believe what they believe? What questions can I ask to try to shed some light on that? So it's not a matter of whether I trust this person or not. That's not what's at stake. Uh, the journalism is more about, let me do the reporting and lay out for you what I have found. And tomorrow I'm going to go back and try to find a little bit more and let you chew on that. And then we keep going. That's how, that's how I build a story. So now in your life, what's juggling parenting and work like? Because your oldest is in college and your youngest is probably preparing to go, right? Yeah, I'm about to live this <laughs> the year of no do-overs all over again because uh -huh. my youngest is 
soon finishing up his junior year of high school and doing college visits with him. And we're about to do the whole process again of his senior year. Um, I've got to start figuring out. Don't tell my editors here yet because I haven't asked them yet, but I'm figuring out some kind of leave for the fall so I can show up for his four o'clock soccer games uh, in the fall because they're really going to be the last ones. Um, So yeah, it's balancing act all over again and then starting to think about for the first time, you know, in a year and change from now, when some, you know, big assignment comes in, to do that and not feel any guilt and not be, you know, sorting out dinner plans back home and carpools and who's walking the dog at home and all the rest. That's going to be, that's going to be quite something. It's been 20 years. But but at the same time, on one of your reporting trips, a fairly recent one, you were like the oldest person of the team. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> by by a couple of decades. Yeah. And you ask yourself, am I getting too old for this? Yeah. Uh, and and when, when will I know that it's time to stop doing that kind of reporting? And I don't know what the answer to that is. That was a, a question that flitted through my mind on a train in Ukraine days before the war broke out. And uh, we were headed into Donbass in eastern Ukraine. We were getting as close as you could get to the Russian border and the front lines of fighting that was already underway. And um, my producers, who are <laughs> two decades younger than me on this trip, are a little annoyed because I have carried in with me my ancient handhold audio recorder, which I love and which has never failed me and which will be buried with me some someday years from now. But for the meantime, it's so ancient that they can't figure out how to upload the audio. And I have lost the cable that connects it. <laughs> so here we are. And I thought, have I become that person who like clings to geriatric technology because I don't want to have to learn the new one? Then I thought, yeah, I guess I have. And uh, yeah, I'm a runner. So I'm fit. I'm happy to schlep gear all over. I'm happy to get little sleep and meet my deadlines and all the rest. But you start wondering, how much longer? How much longer am I going to want to do this? How much longer am I going to have the energy to do this? And right now, the answer is I'm all in. But at some point, I guess it'll be a different answer. We'll cross that bridge when we get there. Well, Mary Louise Kelly, thank you so much for coming on our show. It's been a pleasure to meet you. Because like we said at the beginning, we've never met or spoken before. Never before. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure, Terry. And for me. Mary Louise Kelly is a host of All Things Considered. Her new memoir is called It Goes So Fast, The Year of No Do-Overs. Three of this year's Academy Award-nominated actors, Michelle Williams, Hong Chow, and Judd Hirsch, appear together in the new comedy Showing Up, which is now playing in theaters. It's the latest from the director and co-writer Kelly Reichardt, and it stars Williams as a struggling sculptor being pulled in many directions as she tries to meet a looming deadline. Our film critic Justin Chang has this review. Showing Up is the fourth movie that Kelly Reichardt and Michelle Williams have made together, and I hope there are many more to come. Their collaboration has given us some of Williams' most quietly memorable characters, a young drifter living out of her car in Wendy and Lucy, or a 19th-century pioneer heading west along the Oregon Trail in Meek's Cutoff. Showing Up is a lighter, funnier piece of work. It's pretty much the first Reichardt movie that could be described as a comedy. But like all her films, it's a model of indie realism, made with a level of rigorous observation and rueful insight you rarely see in American movies. Williams plays Lizzie, 
an introverted Portland, Oregon-based sculptor who makes clay figures of women. She has a local show coming up, and she's racing to finish her sculptures in time. But the universe isn't making it easy for her. She works full-time in the office at an art college, where her boss is none other than her mom, who, like almost everyone else, doesn't take Lizzie's creative pursuits too seriously. And so Lizzie has to do her sculpting in her spare time in the apartment she rents out from her friend Joe, terrifically played by Hong Chow. Joe is also an artist, and a more successful one. Her elaborate mixed-media installations have all the wow factor that Lizzie's lovely but modest sculptures don't. It only adds to the tension that Joe isn't the most attentive landlord. At one point, Joe is putting together a swing with an old tire in the backyard when Lizzie shows up to ask about getting her broken water heater fixed. Hey, Lizzie. Check it out. Been hoping to find a good tire for this tree for ages. Joe, the water situation's getting worse. Barely gets lukewarm now. Just a few minutes of lukewarm and then cold. That sounds serious. Well, I'm on it. Just gotta get through this week first. shouldn't even be here right now. I've got so much to do. I do too, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do without hot water. Lizzie, I told you you can use my shower. I want my own water working. My show is open on Friday. I'll be free to deal with it after that. I have a show too, you know, I'm just... You're not the only one with a deadline. I know, but I have two shows, which is insane. Reichardt and her co-writer, John Raymond, perfectly nail the passive-aggressive vibe of Lizzie and Joe's relationship without overdoing it. There's real nuance to both characters. You can understand why Lizzie resents Joe's flakiness, and you can also see why Joe doesn't go out of her way for someone as frosty as Lizzie. Things get a little more complicated, but also more poignant, when Joe rescues a wounded pigeon in their yard, and she and Lizzie take turns nursing it back to health. This isn't the first time Reichardt has given an animal a prominent role in her movies, as she did in Wendy and Lucy and First Cow. And we learn something about Lizzie from the careful, attentive way she looks after the bird, even while juggling her deadlines. Namely, that she's used to making sacrifices for the sake of others. Lizzie spends a fair amount of time checking in on her artist brother, who has mental health issues and who's treated by their mom as the tortured genius of the family. She also mediates tensions between her parents who are divorced. Her dad is a retired potter who's going through something of a late-in-life crisis. He's played by Judd Hirsch, who, as it happens, played the uncle of Williams's character in Steven Spielberg's recent The Fablemans. That movie would make a great double bill with this one. Williams's two characters could hardly be more different, but in each movie, she plays a woman who essentially puts her art on a hold for her family's sake. The fact that most of her family members in showing up are also steeped in the art world doesn't make as much of a difference as you might think. Reichardt's movie is all about the challenge of finding the time, the space, the money, and the energy 
to pursue your calling. It's also about how making art can be both a joy and incredibly hard work. Lizzie's story is interspersed with almost documentary-like sequences of the art college where she works. We see students painting, weaving, dancing, and building installations. There's a nicely personal feel to these moments, informed by Reichardt's own years teaching at Bard College and other schools. But she lingers most of all in the scenes of Lizzie finally getting some time to herself at her workbench, molding her clay, setting her figures aside to dry, and then filling in the details with paint. Watching Lizzie lose herself in her craft for minutes on end, I was reminded of just how rarely the movies show us, really show us, an artist at work. We get a lot of biopics about creative geniuses, but nothing like the richness of texture and insight that Reichardt gives us. It hardly matters that Lizzie may not be destined for fame, because you believe in her and her work at every moment. She's a wondrous creation, and so is this movie. Justin Chang is film critic for the L.A. Times. He reviewed the new film Showing Up, starring Michelle Williams. Coming up, we'll hear from Josh Groban. He's starring as Sweeney Todd in a new Broadway revival of the Sondheim musical. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mass Mutual. According to Calendar.com, the average person schedules just 4.5 hours per year on finances. Mass Mutual gets it. Life is busy. If you can't find time to plan your financial future, find someone who can. Like a Mass Mutual financial professional. For the last 170 years, they've helped people plan for retirement, college tuition, and any other short or long-term financial goals. Learn more at MassMutual.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Osea. This Mother's Day, treat mom to Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Go to OSEAMalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mattress Firm. How do you sleep at night? No matter what might be keeping you up, Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep. Mattress Firm will find you the right mattress from a wide selection of top brands at every budget. Plus, if you see a lower price somewhere else, they'll match it up to 120 nights with their low price guarantee. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and sleep at night. Restrictions apply. See mattressfirm.com or store for details. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. A new revival of Stephen Sondheim's musical Sweeney Todd just opened on Broadway. The original show premiered on Broadway in 1979 and won eight Tony Awards. The music is extraordinary, and our guest, Josh Groban, gets to sing it. He stars in the title role. New York Times theater critic Jesse Green called the revival, quote, ravishingly sung, deeply emotional, and strangely hilarious. 
Josh Groban talked about Sweeney Todd, his life and career, with Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado. Josh Groban first auditioned for the role of Sweeney Todd back in high school for a summer camp production of the musical. He didn't get the part at the time, but he never really gave up that dream of playing the demon barber of Fleet Street. In the years since, Josh Groban did manage to become a multi-platinum artist not so long after that camp audition. He was discovered as a teenager and released his debut album in 2001. He went on to perform in front of huge crowds while on tour and developed a rabid following of his pop operatic sound. And he sold over 35 million records worldwide. He's appeared in movies and TV shows, often self-deprecatingly playing himself, and he's been nominated for Grammys, Emmys, and a Tony Award. That Tony nomination in 2017 for Best Actor in a Musical was for his Broadway debut in the show Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. He's back on Broadway in the revival of Sweeney Todd, the story of a London barber wrongfully convicted, imprisoned, and separated from his beloved wife and daughter. After years, he escapes prison and is out to seek revenge on those who've wronged him. He partners with a struggling baker named Mrs. Lovett, with Sweeney killing his clients and Mrs. Lovett grinding up their remains and turning them into meat pies. Here's a song from Sweeney Todd at the point of the show when they first hatched their plan. Josh Groban plays Sweeney and Mrs. Lovett is played by Tony Award-winning actor Annalee Ashford. What is that? It's fop, finest in the shop. <laughs> and I've got some shepherd's pie peppered with actual shepherd on top. <laughs> and I've just begun. Is the politician so oily and served with a doily? Have one. <laughs> Put it on a bun. Well, you never know if it's going to run. <laughs> She is really too coarse and too Yes, and always arrives overdone. Woo! Yeah. I'll come again when you have judge on the menu. Uh, true, true, we don't, we, don't, we don't have judge yet, but we've got something you might fancy even better. What's that? Customers that we can get Highborn and low, my love Will not discriminate great from small No, we'll serve anyone Meaning anyone And to anyone At That's Josh Groban and Annalee Ashford from the new revival of Sweeney Todd. Josh Groban, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Congratulations on this great production. The story of Sweeney Todd is menacing. It's about grief, rage, and loss. Also, it has grisly murder and cannibalism in that song we just heard. (laughs) You're talking about turning people into pies. I know this is a role that you've wanted to play for a long time since you were younger. What was appealing to you about this show when you were a kid? 
I mean, when you when you mention the storyline like that, I, I just I, I think back to like what the elevator pitch must have been to this in 1978 when it was being written. You know, um, it has so many things about the show that are outlandish and terrible and melodramatic and and beyond the realm of comprehension. And yet, like everything that Sondheim wrote, there is this through line of human connectivity, and uh, he had that genius ability to take these outlandish things and and find the core human truth in them and as a young kid who was you know finding my own way and having a hard time kind of getting out of my own shell and um wondering you know how best to to communicate myself his work reached me at a very young age there was something about it that felt like I, i i knew he like he knew me and i think for those those of us that have loved his work for a very very long time we of course love being swept away by the stories and by these 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 sometimes crazy characters that we have nothing in common with. But the music and the lyrics and the way they all tie together make us feel deeper about who we are. They make us feel things that we never expected, and that's what first brought me to the piece as just as a fan when I was younger. Do you have early memories of the show of the music discovering it? Um, yes, uh, I, I saw a production of it in Los Angeles by a wonderful cast called the East West players who are uh, an incredible Asian company that that works out of Los Angeles and, and, and around the country, and, and they blew my mind. Uh, it was my first time hearing the score. I then went out and got the VHS copy of uh, the famous Los Angeles recording of uh, George Hearn, the wonderful George Hearn, and uh, of course, legendary late great Angela Lansbury. And pun intended, devoured everything I, I could from the musicals, as I did for so, for so many of Sondheim's shows. And, uh, you know, as a young baritone who could sing okay and act okay, but couldn't dance at all, um, these were the kinds of roles that <laughs> really, you know, I felt like the kinds of thing I, I could one day grow into. I know you're a huge fan of Stephen Sondheim, who passed away in 2021. Can you talk about what it is about his writing that you're drawn to most in general and in particular as a vocalist? You know, his songs, they're a feat to perform his songs. (laughs) (laughs) They are. It's a beast. It's a beast to sing uh, each night. I definitely um, this is there's not any any moment in this show to coast. Uh, It takes it requires an enormous amount of focus um, and an enormous amount of checking in, you know, really tuning in with yourself, with your cast. There's so much that you have to kind of lift in this emotionally and vocally that it, 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 it's, it's tiring. you you feel it at the end of the show. And, uh, and what I, what I love about his writing, um, especially, uh, this, this role, uh, some of his writing can be very staccato. The, the writing for Sweeney is, is, has, such incredible line and such incredible fluidity. There's this romanticism to to the music uh, for for Sweeney in particular. That was one of the first things I connected with because I felt like, oh, that's something I can I can really play upon that juxtaposition of the romantic nature of the music and also these horrific things that are happening, you know, by his hand. And I know that that was a juxtaposition that really he he did you know by design and something that he was very very enthusiastic about playing with and um it's just uh, it's such a feast and it's something that even though everybody in this this cast has known it their whole lives 
you keep finding and you keep finding and finding and finding. We've opened, we're officially frozen, but we keep finding. And that's the incredible thing about, about his work is that um, you can keep peeling and peeling and never get to the center. So I, I can't wait to see what we find by show 100. Now, you were born and raised in Los Angeles. Can you tell us a little bit about your family and the neighborhood where you grew up? Um, I grew up in an area of L.A. called Hancock Park. And um, I, I grew up in a, a very artistic but not showbiz family. Um, my mom, who helps me run my arts education foundation now, um, she was a visual art teacher um, at a couple of different schools in Los Angeles. And my dad uh, played jazz trumpet all through college. And, you know, at some point decided that was enough of that, even though he was incredible. And we have old recordings of him playing and he was just awesome. Uh, he went into business. He's a, you know, an executive recruiter, they call a headhunter. And so, um, you know, they, they both have musical and artistic um, sensibilities. But um, the way that I was introduced to entertainment um, and my brother as well, who's a brilliant um, TV and film director. Um, we both found our bug really naturally. And then in high school, having the great privilege of having a, the- a good theater program uh, in school, um, I was able to, you know, join the ensemble of, a, of, of Anything Goes, you know, in seventh grade. And just putting on a costume and standing on stage and feeling part of something like that um, was was life altering. You went to a performing arts high school in L.A. and you started to do musical theater. You played Tevia in a production of Fiddler on the Roof while you were in high school. And I want to play a clip from it, from the big oh number, if I were a rich man. <laughs> this is you your can, life. <laughs> yeah, you can find this on YouTube. Um, can you tell me... Is there a mute me, button? Can I? <laughs> sorry. Can you tell <laughs> me... Okay. No, you're great. Don't worry. Can you tell me... Um, where this was, how old you were here, and what year it would have been? Uh, sure. So this would have been 1999. I was either, I think I was 17. Um, and this was at the wonderful, wonderful Los Angeles County High School for the Arts, um, which is still around and thriving even more than ever. I just recently went and saw their production of Sweeney Todd, um, which was so much fun to see. And a couple of their students have already come to the show. And um, and it, it's a place where um, I really cut my teeth and really found myself and found my musical theater confidence. And one of the first lead roles I got was uh, was Tevye in Fiddler on the Roof. And it was uh, a lot of fun. I could not grow a real beard. Um, that was a fake a fake beard, and uh, but it was it was a blast. Okay, let's hear a little bit of it. If I were a rich man, all day long I'd biddy biddy bum. If I were a wealthy man, who wouldn't have to work hard, if I were a bitty, bitty rich, yidle, dyden, deedle, dyden man. 
That's my guest, Josh Groban, in a high school production of Fiddler on the Roof. Um, you you mentioned a fake beard, and because the yeah. video is old, it it actually doesn't look that different from your Sweeney beard. I'm no, it say. doesn't. Strangely, strangely enough, my real beard grew in quite nicely, uh, very very similarly to that to that beard. But um, uh, yeah, yeah well, that was well, a lot of fun. Yeah, what's striking to me here is that your voice is already so full. I I'm gonna read the the Wikipedia description of Tevia, which is quote, Jewish dairyman living in the Russian Empire who is patriarch of a family. And this performance is giving me that. It's giving me <laughs> Tevia. I'm so glad. <laughs> did you feel like you had a voice that was beyond your years, yeah. even back then? I did. I definitely felt like I had puppy paws, you know, with my voice and that I, I needed to grow into it, which is why it's so nice to to kind of finally be like 42. You know, I'm finally like at the age where my voice sounds. And, um, you know, it's uh, it was... It was uh, just an incredible platform to sink in and, and feel that and feel, you know, that, that, that performance and that year was really when I started to feel like my voice was coming into its own. Um, and, you know, it's, and again, many of the friends that I made from that production are still some of my close friends today. Um, you know, it, uh, it was uh, wonderful. Every, every Jewish relative on my father's side came and, and, and saw it and uh, pinched my cheeks. And it was, uh, it, was just a, it was just a wonderful experience all around. I'll never, I'll never forget it. And, uh, and it, it was, it was, I go back and I listen to it and I go, wow, kid, you were so self-critical, but you were actually pretty good. <laughs> it was pretty good. Yeah, you you've said that you felt kind of like you felt old like an old soul. But does that have to do with your singing voice? You think that, you know, you have this baritone deep voice from that time you were a teenager? Yeah, I mean, I I had somebody tell me once when I sang at a, you know, recital or something when I was really young, when I was like 15 and said, you know, hey, you know, you've got you've got an incredible light bulb. You just need to up the wattage. And uh and which was kind of mean at a, at a anniversary. <laughs> like I don't know you, <laughs> sir. Um, but uh, but yeah, I I that was like the equivalent of you know realizing that I could you know throw a football or you know hit hit a home run. You know, I, I to me that was my that was my sport. You know, was realizing that I had that thing that that I could do and I could really feel confident with. And it took until about eleventh grade or even 12th grade, I would say, which is when that performance happened for me to actually feel, you know, um, that I, I could, could do this and do it, do it reasonably well. Um, and, and it was really not long after that clip you just played that David Foster kind of said, you know, Hey, you know, I need a singer for something. Uh, you know, would you mind coming and, and singing at this event? And, and, you know, that was 17 and I was in the studio at, 18 and a half. I wonder if you, looking back at how you wanted to be in musical theater all those years back, and here you are playing one of your dream roles, if not a main dream role, do you think about that, about your younger self and what he would think? You know, I give myself time to to do that. Um, it's, it's really, I mean, I can't even describe sometimes in words just how special it is. Um, and sometimes that specialness can be a detriment because ultimately it's for the audience. And so there's a good amount of time where I have to, for my own, you know, uh, for my own sake, performance-wise, leave some of that um, emotion and full circleness of it at the door to do the to do the job. 
Um, and then there are times where I allow myself to really sink in and enjoy and appreciate what this has meant all of these years. Um, I have a I have a, a signed photograph of George Hearns <laughs> in my home when he was doing, I was here for, I was in New York looking at colleges. I was 17. It was around the time I was doing Fiddler, actually. And uh, George Hearn was doing Diary of Anne Frank uh, with uh, Natalie Portman. He was playing Mr. Frank. And, um, and I had a letter all written out. I wrote the whole thing telling him how much I just loved his Sweeney Todd and just love his work and love his voice. And would he be so kind to send me a, an eight by 10, you know, and I brought it up to the front of the stage, which, you know, of course now I realize like, don't do that, you know? Um, but I, I brought a letter up to the front of the stage and I found a stage hand. I said, excuse me, excuse me, can you please pass this letter? And, and the guy goes, no, 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 we're not accepting anything for Natalie Portman. I'm so sorry. And I'm like, no, 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 this is for, uh, this is for George Hearn. And he goes, oh, for George. Yeah. Yeah. He'd love that. Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, and so I handed it to the stage manager, never expecting to, to get anything back. I know they're extremely busy. And uh, sure enough, a couple months later, I got an 8 by 10 back to Josh Fondly, George Hearn. And uh, I, this is, I've, never, I've never told this story publicly, so I don't think he has any idea that this happened and that I'm now doing Sweeney. But um, if, uh, if any of you know him, <laughs> please pass it along. That I'm very grateful that he did that. And it's... it's uh, it, you know, I, like I said, it's just, it just, it means so much to me that I get to um, carry the torch right now for, for this iconic piece and for this role and to, um, to have this time to share it with new audiences um, until the next person takes it on. Josh Groban, thank you so much for your time and congratulations again on Sweeney Todd. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Josh Groban is starring in the new Broadway revival of the Sondheim musical Sweeney Todd. He spoke with Fresh Airs and Marie Baldonado. If you want to hear the entire interview, go to our website, freshair.npr.org, or listen to the Fresh Air podcast. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. I'm Terry Gross. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why people do the things they do. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com podcast or wherever you listen. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.